Well, this is the last uh, Sunday in our series that we've had all summer on the psalms that shape us. So all summer long, we've invited people from the congregation to submit psalms that are meaningful to them, and then we've preached those psalms with them in a variety of ways. And so this week's psalm is Psalm 19. It was submitted by our resident scientist, Nancy, and ukulele bass player, Vestry Warden extraordinaire. Uh, and so we'll be sharing this psalm together. And so um, I'm just going to pray for all of us and invite Nancy up to share. Lord, let the words of our mouths and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. Over to you. Thanks. Good morning, everyone. So back in 2018, when Grant and I moved to the area and we were looking for a church, one of the things that made Incarnation stand out to me was the wonder part of its focus. Worship, welcome, wonder. And I want to explain why as a reflection on Psalm 19, the first part of Psalm 19. So among my earliest childhood memories were my grandmother taking me as a five-year-old to the science museums in Philadelphia. And I remember seeing animals and gemstones, exhibits about physics, about the human body, about clouds, the ocean, fossils, seashells. And I was transfixed by all of these beautiful things that had somehow come to be and fascinated by the natural laws that govern them. And I never wanted to leave the museum. I always wanted to stay. And it set me on a trajectory of thinking, why would I or anyone really ever want to do anything besides science with their life? Um, so to me, science has never been about mastering all of the known facts, but it's about wonder. So maybe you've heard this idea that science is thinking God's thoughts after him. Astronomer Johannes Kepler said it first about 400 years ago, and he goes on to say, since we scientists are priests of the highest God in regard to the book of nature, it benefits us to be thoughtful not of the glory of our minds, but rather, above all else, of the glory of God. So doing science and thinking God's thoughts after him while turning the pages of the book of nature has always been a worshipful thing to me. So this early childhood wonder has came back at various times as I was growing up on a moonlit beach in the Yosemite Valley, walking through a redwood forest. It always stopped me in my tracks. And years later, I realized that for me, these experiences were similar to something called the numinous. Now, I don't know if you've ever heard that word. I see a few people nodding, but let me explain it. Um, it was made up by German philosopher Rudolf Otto. And we can understand it with reference to the word ominous. Okay, so ominous is like if you learned there was a tiger in the next room, you'd have this sense of impending danger. Right? So that's ominous, which you all know, but numinous is more like how you'd feel if someone told you there was a powerful spirit in the next room. You'd not be so worried about danger, but just that there's something mysterious going on, something uncanny, maybe beautiful, maybe it's a, some kind of presence that's beyond this world, and you might feel like you need to fall on your face in humility in the presence of something like this. So that's the numinous, and it's maybe a richer way to encompass what I mean by wonder. Uh, but I don't think 
worship, welcome, and the numinous would work <laughs> as a tagline, so um, stick with wonder. It's better. Um, now, I don't think that my early experiences of the numinous are unusual or new, but I am sure that it's not something that just comes from observing the natural world. It's more like a moment of resonance. And I think of when, when the bass is played, sometimes you feel it in your body. You feel it resonating, right? And the book of Genesis says that we are made in the image of God. And so for me, the, the numinous makes that image of God in me somehow respond or vibrate, resonate, alerting me, telling me something about God's presence and his character. So now let me zip back to my story. So I was a fairly new Christian when I went off to college, and it was by no means a Christian college. I won't count the ways. You can ask me about that later. Um, but I, I was eager to learn, um, and I signed up for some religion classes. And I remember one that was taking an anthropological approach and focusing on these animistic tribes in Burma, I think it was, and explaining their religion in terms like projection of and therapy for emotional problems, among other ideas. Um, and then it dawned on me, maybe my own religious faith was simply like this, a projective system that I was enculturated into. And I felt my confidence draining and the ground crumbling of my faith the more I thought about it. But at the same time, I was taking my first biochemistry class. And when the professor started unpacking how DNA works, how it not only encodes everything about all living things, but how there are these tiny protein machines inside our cells that proofread it as the DNA is copied, and then they go back and they fix mistakes, like an army of monks copying an ancient manuscript. And wham, at that point, right there in the lecture hall, the numinous hit me. And it was uncanny, beautiful, like the image of God in me was resonating as I got to think God's thoughts after him in that moment of understanding how this all worked. So I felt my ground of faith growing firmer and my feet coming back under me. And I could live and thrive off of this sense of the numinous that was served up to me by science. So what does that have to do with Psalm 19, you may be wondering, right? Um, <laughs> Um, so stay with me, and let me move from the very small, what goes on inside cells, to the very large. Okay, so when you go outside on a summer evening, it's kind of noisy. You hear crickets, you hear maybe distant traffic, people talking, you, you might hear music. But when you look up to the sky, doesn't the universe out there seem utterly silent? It's like when I look up, I think all of a sudden, like, the mute button has gone on when I look up into the sky. But is it silent? In the last couple of years, scientists have detected gravitational waves in the, universe, in the universe. And if you picture them as like ripples moving across a pond when, this, when a stone is dropped in, and in the case of the universe, the stone is an event like black holes colliding, and they cause gravitational waves to move across the universe. So and just this year, we learned that there's not just the occasional gravitational wave moving along, but it's a cacophony of waves constantly rolling across the universe from many, many events. And they pass through the Earth, they pass through us. And I want to quote uh, an article about this recent discovery that was written by uh, astrophysicist Adam Frank, just in June this year. He writes, there's a din, a hum, like the whole universe is Mongolian throat singing, 
Every star, every planet, every continent, every person is vibrating along to the slow cosmic beat. And then he continues, and note, he's, he's an astrophysicist, he's not a theologian, okay? And he says, something miraculous, something wonderful is happening. Each of us contains the signature of everything that has ever been. So now we know from science that the universe is not silent, it has a voice. You might say it has a baseline. So does this seem wonderful or even numinous? To you, it does to me when I first heard of this. God's image in all of us resonating with the song of the universe. And when I first heard of the discovery, I thought of Psalm 19. So now I want to go back to it and read it again, bearing in mind what I've just told you. And also bearing in mind that the psalmist had no idea that gravitational waves exist. This is a slightly different version from what we read just a moment ago. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they display knowledge. There is no speech or language where their voice is not heard. Their voice goes out into all the earth, their words to the ends of the world. So this sounds very noisy to me. And Amy tells me that the word voice here can mean measuring line, which makes it even more amazing to me because a wave has a steady and a specific frequency, it's as dependable as a measuring line. So the psalmist here captured for me what is numinous, but he also somehow captured what scientists, how scientists understand the universe in 2023. So to me, that's kind of a wondrous thing. So now let me go back to my story for a moment. So my, my early experiences of being haunted by the numinous primed me to be looking for God and indeed I felt his image resonating. But something else, seemingly unrelated, was happening too. At the same time, I was craving righteousness. I wanted to be sure somehow that I was doing what I ought to do, what was good to do. And both of these things, a sense of the numinous and a craving to understand what is good and to be made righteous, both of these are part of what make us human. And both of them make that image of God in us resonate or start to come alive. And Psalm 19 acts as a hinge between these two pieces, connecting them and ultimately pointing us to Jesus. So at this point, I'm going to turn it over to Amy. Thanks, everyone. Thank you, Nancy. So when Nancy and I started talking about this psalm, we pretty quickly decided to basically just split it in half. The scientist would take the first half, and this is a generous term for myself, but the theologian would take the second half, because it really is a psalm in two distinct parts. And really, these are two different kinds of psalms that are kind of stitched together right here. They're held together with a hinge, like Nancy says, And that hinge is God's desire, his relentless action of revealing himself to us, making himself known. And so verses 1 through 6, what Nancy just focused on, they are a creation psalm, a psalm that focuses on God's revelation to us through nature, through stars, through the created world. And in fact, those verses use a different name for God than the rest of the psalm. 
they use the Hebrew word El, which is actually just a generic word for God, kind of like our lowercase g, God, just a creator, deity. And it was a word that was shared by other languages, other cultures, other peoples at that time. That's what they called their deities too. And so there's good evidence that this first half of the psalm actually was taken from a non-Hebrew hymn or poem worshiping a pagan sun god. But it takes that sun and that imagery and it places all of it within the domain of God's rule. In this psalm, it's God that bids the sun out of its pavilion and it's God that has the sun run across the sky like a champion every day. And the use of this pagan poetry, it doesn't need to diminish our sense of the beauty and the wonder of this first half of the psalm at all. In fact, if anything, it can show us how God is always relentlessly revealing himself to us in creative partnership with people. Even these people who didn't worship God, who were often the enemies of God worshipers, people who were still made in God's image, people who still had that resonating experience of the numinous, people who were still created to worship, they just had their worship misaimed. God can still use that and use their poetry and use their hymns into a tool to reveal something about himself that's true. And God is just relentless about revealing true things about himself to us. He doesn't stop at those wavelengths reverberating from the heavens. And this psalm moves from this general revelation of God in creation to this more particular revelation of God in the words of scripture. And that's the focus of the second half of this psalm. So if the first half is a creation psalm focusing on L, this generic lowercase g God, the second half is describing Yahweh, the very particular God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This very particular God who calls and promises and rescues and sustains and loves his people. This very particular God who gave his people a law so that they could live justly and abundantly. And this very particular God who always throughout the Hebrew scriptures chooses to describe himself in a very particular way as gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. So the heavens can reveal the glory of El, but only scripture can reveal the particular glory of this particular God called Yahweh, this God who is always particularly and relentlessly revealing himself to humans. And so that's what the second half of the psalm is about. It's a kind of psalm called a Torah psalm, praising God for his revelation in Torah, in his revealed word, what the verses call law, statutes, testimonies, precepts, commands, the fear of the Lord, the judgments of the Lord, And we see the psalmist isn't just talking about the Ten Commandments here. He's talking about all the words of Scripture and with them all of the ways that we recite and memorize and meditate and interpret and create liturgies and pray and sing and live out these words in a community of faith. And Eugene Peterson says this about the Torah Psalms. 
He says, the noun Torah comes from a verb, yara, that means to throw something, say, a javelin, so that it hits its mark. The word that hits its mark is Torah. God's words have this aimed, intentional, personal nature, and when we are spoken to this way, piercingly and penetratingly, we are not the same. These words get inside us and work their meaning in us. And that's why the psalmist can say all these things about God's words, that they revive the soul, that they're sure, that they give wisdom, that they're just, that they bring joy, that they're clear, that they bring light, that they are clean, they endure, they are true and righteous altogether. It's why he can say he wants these words more than money and more than food. It's why Jeremiah can say in our Old Testament reading, your words were found and I ate them. Your words became to me a joy and the delight of my heart. And these words come to us miraculously and surprisingly and frankly head-scratchingly through humans, through human participation all the way down. Joseph interpreting dreams, Moses carrying tablets down the mountain, judges and kings leading God's people, prophets speaking God's truth to empires, poets singing these song prayers that we call the Psalms. We have the scriptures because God's spirit empowered and inspired people. People like us, so wondrously made, so steadfastly loved, and so hopelessly flawed. Well, in the final verses of this psalm, the javelin has hit its mark. The psalmist has encountered this revelation of Yahweh, and he's not the same. He feels his own lack. He feels his inability to truly take hold of and live by these words, these particular words of revelation about this particular God. His inability to measure up to the vastness of the glory that's been revealed. So he cries out, I don't even know all the ways that I don't measure up to you, God. So cleanse me from what's just secretly lurking in there. I can't even know what might be wrong with me. Keep me from being foolish. Keep me from sinning on purpose. Make me acceptable to you. Be my strength, be my redeemer. We hear that same craving for righteousness that Nancy described, that same craving to be good, to get inside of the goodness and the glory of this God that's been revealed in the heavens and revealed in scripture. And God is relentless here too, because God's ultimate revelation is not in the skies, and it's not even in a book. It's in a human being, in Jesus Christ, the Word made flesh. The fullest revelation of God is in the life and teaching and suffering and death and resurrection of Jesus. And God took on humanity in Jesus so that he could be fully humanity's strength and redeemer. He united our human flesh to his and he put to death everything in us that doesn't measure up so that we can claim the words of the psalm and we can be whole and sound and innocent. And in the end, because we are united with Jesus, we get inside the glory that's been revealed. 
this glory that will outshine even the most numinous heavens. C.S. Lewis reminds us, nature is mortal. We shall outlive her. When all the suns and nebula have passed away, each one of you will still be alive. If the words of scripture are to be taken seriously, then we are to shine as the sun. We are to be given the morning star. We will be numinous in Jesus, and we will declare the glory of God, and we will show his handiwork forever. And until then, we pray, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. O Jesus Christ, my strength and my redeemer. Amen.